Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Today, we have our first in-person interview with Horace. How are you going today, Horace? Oh, I'm, I'm great. Or like, like you said, this is the first time we actually are face-to-face. <laughs> and not only that, we're... So intimidating. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're on location. <laughs> we're on location in yeah. the hallowed grounds of, uh, I guess this would be Soma, uh, this South area. Park. South yeah. Park. South yeah, Park. Yeah. And we have with us Riley Brennan. How are you going, Riley? Hey, how's it going, guys? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no. That's awesome. It's, it's, uh, we're all really excited to have you here because... Obviously, this uh, we we had a chance to get introduced to you in the in the um, investor panel, which will be uh, coming out. Actually, that'll be released at at a podcast at some stage from the recent micromobility. Uh, That's right. So just to just if, in case you're hearing this in 2037, sometime in the future, uh, we just had the we just had the first um, micromobility conference in California um, over in. Uh, uh, Richmond, California, actually, and uh, Riley was uh, guest of honor uh, with the presence on our um, our panel on capital and the you know we call it what, what, you know the purpose of capital in micromobility and that uh, was a great panel. Um, we we just wanted to follow up with Riley and his thoughts further deeper into the subject and have have that. Uh, Deep dive on, on, on. So, Riley, just why don't you introduce yourself sure. so that everybody knows who you are? Sure. I'm Riley Brennan from Trucks Venture Capital. We fund entrepreneurs building the future of transportation, uh, micro mobility enthusiast, a Simco enthusiast, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Awesome. So, maybe if you can just like dig into what, what does trucks do? I mean, when yeah. you say you invest in the future of transport, what does that look like? Well, we believe that. Uh, Focusing just on transportation is really valuable, um, and transportation is a big enough tent where if, depending on how the market is evolving, there's always things that are undervalued and will become more valuable. So for us, we've done a lot of investing in robotics and software and services. Uh, We've done investing in things that are maybe a little bit more pragmatic, like vehicle cleaning and tires and stuff like that. And we've also done a lot in micromobility. Uh, we've done three investments in micromobility to date. I, you know, we're interested in doing more because we think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, so we've picked a, a focus of doing transportation, but you know, like food or like, you know, um, real estate, we think that's there's a it's a big enough tent to support a lot of different movements. And um, certainly for trucks. We invest pre-seed and seed, so we see companies and parts of the market emerging, you know, kind of as they're getting um, a little bit of heat, and we see some interesting things with pricing. So, for example, over the last 18 months, the, um, you know, the pre-money valuations of, of autonomous vehicle startups have gone down a lot, really? um, and micro-mobility stuff has gone up a lot, you know, and then we can talk about 20 other categories where that changes. So... That's why I like transportation as a category to invest in. Just wanted to follow up on that. So, so just I think it's one of the coolest names. First of all, Trucks VC. I think I think that's that's so unusual. People give it usually get these very techy names. 
or it's your or it's a proper name. It's your name. That's that used to be the cool thing in Silicon Valley. Like it sounded like a, a law firm, you know, right? Where there's four people come together, and I think because they back in the day, law firms were more respected and, uh, than VC. No one knew what a venture capitalist really did. But now it's you, people pick you know words out of thin air. We thought trucks was slightly appropriate, but also somewhat anonymized. Yeah, and it's 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 refreshing, and also I think it speaks to the job you're you know you you're 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 doing in terms of solving problems which are less less you know sexy or exotic. It's sort of more more down to earth, and it's where the the value is probably more more likely to be captured. And uh, you know we um, Riley and I should say we've been. Uh, Communicating for a while, um, looking at at, at micro mobility for a while, and so we're delighted to have you. And I just want to dig into the uh, you know, do you buy into this whole notion that uh, trip distance matters? That that you have a segmentation that that works with this distance as an indicator of of where the opportunities lie. Absolutely. I mean, I think vehicles are way over-specified for most of their tasks. I mean, this is an argument we can make for automated vehicles as well, that, you know, so much of what you carry around in an automated vehicle is designed around crash protection, you know, and if you take it to its extreme, you know, uh, airplanes aren't designed with a lot of crash protection. Um, in fact, very little to none um, because they're not designed to crash, right? So one of the philosophies of investing in automated vehicles is, you know, how you can actually specify the vehicle appropriately, which means taking a lot of weight out of it because you're doing other things to the system, mostly to make sure that they don't crash or they crash far fewer times. Um, Microbility is, is another leap on that, which is to say um, the really appropriate job to be done um, of going a short distance shouldn't need a multi-thousand pound vehicle. In fact, now, because of the efficiencies from other supply chains like toys and RC planes and cell phones, you can do it with a vehicle that's 25 pounds, mm -hmm. um, which I find to be really fascinating. Absolutely. So that's that's been our observation as well. And, and uh, uh, it's about fit to purpose uh, and, and the, the idea that actually the, the coolest technologies now are consumerized um, as and, and you have tremendous horsepower available. And I, I mean by that, of course, compute power available for fitting into micro vehicles and it'll make them smarter, faster even than, than large vehicles and also their lifespans are shorter and therefore they were able to turn the fleets over and, and become uh, you know, more up to date, if you will, with, with whatever is the, you know, the, the, the technology curve. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the way capital has flown, flowed into this because I think the, one of the things here as an analyst, when I look at it and you know, we see this tremendous S curve, we see this tremendous adoption curve, we see a rides now at uh, run rates of 100 million a year in terms of uh, um, micromobility. And that's just scooters. I don't even have a handle on the bike business yet. But um, a lot of that was because it was catalyzed through capital. It was, it was not just pull, it was a lot of push. There was a lot of new capacity available for, for vehicles. And um, and so in many ways, when I talk about it, you, you know, I, I make it seem like it's inevitable because the demand is there. And certainly there's an infinite demand, but the role of capital is essential here. And, and the acceleration of this curve due to that is, is, uh, is certainly uh, extraordinary. And I've said this before, that this is one of the fastest adoptions I've ever seen. 
but but the downside is a lot of sometimes capital starts to chase what they think is a finished or complete solution and and as we saw in China with bike share possibly now with scooter share we see an over over expansion if you will um, how do you see that and and do you think that there's some group think or there's some kind of uh, fear of missing out that's causing this yeah. well I believe that this is a really high growth platform in its experimental phase so the potential is really wonderful and um, there will be big winners created out of this but we're in the truly the embryonic phase of this and a lot of the attention and the money has gone into the what I would just call in general the shared uh, permit model and um, I think there's a lot of different ways this is going to diverge. Certainly you have other models for, for putting vehicles in use in a city, whether you have open permitting or you have contracts. Um, right now, majority of this has gone into um, shared and open cities are flipping to permits. And I think that's going to create some interest and has created some interesting dynamics for really capping the potential of these companies. So um, if you, we were to measure all the capital that's gone into micromobility in the U.S., you know, it's obviously gone into really two companies, and their model to date is exposing a, I think, an inferior hardware product to a um, consumer that really wants to do this, and they're being forced to deal with uh, inadequate hardware. So obviously, the hardware is going to get better, but I think one of the core assumptions of a lot of the um, big sharing platforms is that a lot of their business problems will be solved by better hardware. The difference I think is that assumes that some of these fleets are actually going to design and build their own hardware or they're going to design and have a contract manufacturer build it or they're going to take some exclusives from Ninebot or Electason or somebody else and I don't know how that's all going to play out but that is one of the one of 2019's micromobility questions is what does a hardware look like in you know 11 months when we get to the end of the year that exposes some of these businesses as being great businesses or maybe mediocre ones. Mm -hmm. um, right now, they're all mediocre because they're all running on really crappy hardware. Mm -hmm. um, no offense to Ninebot because I think there's a lot of talented people there, but those vehicles fundamentally were not designed for shared use. They're consumer grade. So this is another question I'd love to ask you to Horace about, you know, does the 25-pound um, personally owned vehicle that's been forced into a shared context, what are the design characteristics of that that need to be made more durable to be a truly good shared system. I have some thoughts on where that needs to go from weight and um, some other characteristics of the vehicle. I'd love to hear what are your thoughts yeah. about so, shared. So I came from bike sharing, and bike sharing has gone through several stages of evolution when, when we, we ended up with electric, uh, electric bikes and shared electric bikes, or even in parallel, just plain shared uh, regular bikes. And, and so you see how people developed more rugged bikes. The very early generation bikes, by the way, were consumer bikes, and, and they were... Uh, they didn't have any electronics on board or anything like that, but we've seen that move forward. Now, the big leap, I think, occurred with the removable batteries. Mm -hmm. Once you get to that, your operations cost goes down significantly. I think that's coming. It already has come to some um, vehicles in, um, in Asia, in, in Singapore, I think. Um, we have removable battery. The next uh, big deal for me is going to be ruggedizing the frame to the point where we also want to have a little bit more, wheel, the wheel size needs to increase to cope with uh, uh, both safety, but also with uh, different road conditions we're going to see in, in cities that are uh, no litter adopter. 
Um, and and, um, and on top, once you get to the wheel size and you get uh, um, a bigger frame, then you're gonna do, do suspensions. And suspension plus braking is gonna need to get better. Uh, and all of that is sort of, makes the vehicle much more, uh, much more like a, um, uh, you know, um, not not just fleet quality, but I think a more luxurious ride. It's going to feel feel better. It's going to be safer. It's going to be more comfortable for for a bigger population. And then uh, then now after the mechanical stuff, it's going to be really interesting to see what we do with with onboard uh, communications and compute. Uh, uh, Skip I know is already rolling out cameras. Uh, the idea of imaging for uh, both for 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 fleet operations but also for the benefit of cities and having that data capture inform cities about their, uh, their environment. I know folks in the automotive space have been looking at dash cams as a source of such a thing. Uh, uh, Nexar comes to mind. Um, and then, uh, so then you have additional sensing, additional imaging. Um, then we're gonna have potentially um, Accessories, which is really interesting to me, because you know helmets are a pain point now, but they could become a valuable. Mm -hmm. um, um, kind of, uh, you know, yeah. So, so the, in the sense that that you might actually want to have a personal helmet that you use for micro mobility, that's going to communicate with the vehicle, charge from the vehicle, maybe, but also it's going to provide you with a, a the computer human interaction that's necessary for for enhanced vision, enhanced warnings and signals. So, so that's a safety to me for a safety as a platform I call it, um, and uh, haptics and handlebars, things like that. So at some point, I think maybe two generations down the road, we're going to look at safety as something that is a that is enabled by by software. It's enabled by hardware, possibly uh, modularized in terms of not always in the vehicle, but but uh, but in in, a, in another layer, and that means then it becomes a compute question, and that you're going to have excess capacity give that 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 gives you the the safety uh, an, uh, uh, engine. And then we're going to see apps, and we're going to see all kinds of new software uh, that will, uh, you know, open up to third parties, and people will start to layer things on top of that core. The way I think about it, just if I may, because if you if you go back to the history of the iPhone, now we know that it's an app platform, but it was when it launched, it was really just a very much focused on very simple jobs to be done. Remember, it was it was an um, iPod an internet communicator and a phone. That was the way Steve launched it. And, and the apps came later. Like, you know, there was this argument that he actually resisted apps. But I think he, was, he just didn't want to launch them for their own sake. He just wanted to be, have the case proven to him before he would, he would you know, unleash that. And the reason is that he, he, he knew that apps were, were uh, need to sit on top of a core functionality that's really solid for the end user. And to me, that core functionality is it's not that I think we will we'll end up with apps on, on, on vehicles, but we're, we're not going to do it just because people want to have apps. I think it'll be done because on, it'll be sitting on top of a compute platform that enables safety, just like a compute platform enabled uh, music and browsing on the phone. Yeah, I think one of the questions, though, is is there a single device which replicates the analogy to an iPhone, or is micro-ability itself? And that is a huge question, and I, I, I don't know. I really, um, I don't think there's a universal form factor, predominantly because the seg the segmentation question, like we talk about miles, um, and the, the segmentation, uh, the, the, prem the premise of phones, by the way, was to highly segmented 
before the iPhone. We had cheap flip phones and we had candy bar phones and then we had keyboard phones of different shapes and sizes, sliders, all kinds of things until we ended up with this universal, um, probably over, over, over serving uh, for a lot of the use cases, but somehow we brought people along. So the equivalent here would be that we would have, let's say, a scooter, not not a but a sit-down scooter that would have um, um, plenty of horsepower, a big screen, you know, Bluetooth, and all these other things, and it would work nicely across a spectrum of miles. But I don't know if that's really going to be the case. So that's the, there's one ideal form factor. It might be cases where people will say scooters, you know, will get uh, will, may, parking may be the the, the, the limiting factor there. Because if you have a scooter like Scoot's Scoot sit-down scooter, that is still a street vehicle. It is not a lane vehicle. It is not a sidewalk vehicle. It will not be permitted to park it indoors. You can't take it upstairs or anywhere else with you. So, so to yeah. me, it, it, it's still a puzzle as to we end up with one, one form factor to rule them all, or do we end up with, with really a portfolio of form factors, but maybe a horizontal software layer or horizontal... Uh, layer as we see with mobility as a service. I think, for example, Uber's interface of saying, well, you want to get A to B, let's offer you options. That is more interesting to me as, a, as kind of the, the, the user experience, um, how that's going to get delivered. So it, I'm, it, it, I'm really curious from, from your perspective. So Riley, you, you obviously like, you had done a lot of the early investments into the AR, like the, the AV or autonomous vehicle space. And how, because obviously you see that develop and that's gone through this very big hype phase. And when you guys were originally looking at that, um, it strikes me as being really similar in some ways. You've got lots of different like vehicle types, the different manufacturers and all that sort of, um, sort of thing. Would you see that there are parallels in the way that this, this is developing to the way that the original AV or um, AV space in terms of like an OS around what all of, the, all of these vehicles might run on? Uh, I think there's a lot of analogies between AV and micromobility in the amount of uh, sheer hype that's gone into it. I, I think the AV, the early part of AV, which was fascinating, is it really grew out of research labs that wasn't uh, commercially ready for any type of investment until really Google started to put a lot of attention on its program. And it was around that kind of 2010 to 2000 through 2015 period where a couple of true believers were building robotics that became companies, mostly out of research labs, and that's the, those are kind of the primary investments we started to make in our fund. Um, these micromobility companies here are not necessarily technology-driven out of research labs. They're really fleets. They're, at some people might say, the, the you know, Pan Am or TWA of, of the airline business. Um, all analogies intended, of course, that, you know, it appears that these are going to be the dominant fleets that we ride on for the next 30 years, but maybe not. Um, and I think one of the bets we wanted to make was like, well, let's make some, let's put some investment behind people who we think are going to be competitively advantaged from a hardware perspective. Um, we don't have enough time to invest in Ninebot because that started well before our fund was created. So what if we could back Sanjay who created Boosted Board and who is starting Skip and if they end up differentiating on hardware we'll, we'll feel we'll have the, one of the best bets in that space mm -hmm. so that's why we did a Skip investment um, and I think that it, I would love if we had more product 
uh, and technology going into the space. A lot of the money that's going into micromobility right now is going to finance um, really the land grab. Um, it's not going into core technologies. Yeah, and it's not an R and D spend, right? It's it's, yeah. a, it's if anything, it's an operational expenses uh, or right. or capex. So yeah. it's not R and D. So that's that's been something of a of a of a point for me that that uh, it's also an opportunity though. It shows that we're let, let me use instead of the airline analogy, I would use mobile phone analogy. So if you look at that history, although the phone was invented, it was a necessary core technology, almost all the capital early on was in the network operators. You had um, what ended up being AT&T, you know, you have these small cellular players, Macaw, I think Communications was one of the early ones when you had still analog. Um, And so you needed to build cell towers, a lot of the incumbents, where we're you know spinning out cellular divisions that require this this flow of capital, and so for for at least fifteen years, I'd say the entire cellular story was really an operator story, and you had high ARPU because you could you know you had early adopters who were very insensitive to pricing, so typically your your phone bill would go to hundreds of dollars, and all you did was voice, um, and now we're at the point where where it's the, the device that d- determines and even the layers of software in the device that determine where the value is captured. Yes, there's still a lot of money being made or spent at least in the network. It's just not where we think of the big growth is going to happen. So in that, in t- to my way of thinking then, the, the, the operators, the linemen birds, are the, the early Verizon AT&Ts. Um, and to the extent that they realize that, okay, we need to spend on, on engineering and vehicle, then they'll set it up as a department or they'll set up some cap, they'll set aside some money, but it's not really the, the core. If you look also at the people who run these things, um, their skill sets come from ops. They're, sure. They're, 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 right. they're not engineering-led companies. I agree. Sure. Do you think there's room for, I, we ask ourselves this question, is there room for another manufacturer that supplies the industry like Ninebot does. Um, you know, you have mini, mo- mini motors and Electasom, but they're not anywhere near the level of Ninebot. Do you feel that there could be an opportunity for a brand new manufacturer, and would that manufacturer necessarily have to be located in within the supply chain in China? Uh, so, so this is a great question because I, you know, we, we, let me step back by saying there's a theory about this, and this is the modular integration theory. So modularity suggests that as an, as an industry evolves, it's going to break down through into a value chain or value network where you have more specialization and you have clear boundaries between the layer, these value, value, value chain layers. Um, but that happens later. Usually the early stage is a very integrated stage because if you relied on the supplier, you might be out of sync in your development cycle and you're never going to be able to really push the envelope on what's possible. So you got to get your hands around the whole problem. In fact, Apple is this sort of integrative company that only does well if what they're doing, what the product that they're targeting is, an, is a, is a, requires a degree of integration. So they're better early and not so good, good late. Um, so, so in that, using that theory, you know, we're, we're, what we're seeing actually is somewhat the uh, anomaly here because we do see the separation of powers between operations and hardware and even uh, software, which is done separately. Uh, but that's a marriage of convenience. I think it's because it's possible to get started quickly in a modular fashion, given the pieces that are on the table. 
But as you, you as you realize what what your necess, what what's necessary for you to succeed is more integration, you'll start to bring things in house. Um, if you don't, someone who does will simply do better. And so this is the this is going to be the the phase where uh, you know the the the. The maverick out there would be someone like maybe Sanjay who says, "Okay, no, we need to do hardware in house." Yeah, we're or it operating. could be boosted. I mean, if you, you read the you know the boosted yeah, announcement from a few months ago, that they're clearly going to get into this in a so, way that's so, more sophisticated than just putting so a handlebar. Yeah, to some extent, people are starting to elbow into adjacent spaces. You know, if you were in hardware, you might say, "Oh, we can do operations," and if you're in operations, you say, "Oh, we might do hardware." And both are doing that. They're looking into their adjacent spaces because they realize that. Hey, we're not. It's not going fast enough, and we can probably capture value by going faster. So, um, so I think that's the, the, it, there's a there's a there's a potential here for an integration play, and um, and then on top of that, there's stacks and stacks we haven't addressed. I keep going back to this question of what is the platform? Is it software? Is it safety? Is it going to be compute communications intelligence? You know, Uber's leaked um, intent to get into autonomy. No, not even leaked. They announced it on stage at Micromobility. Right. <laughs> yes, right. I think this is one of the things I'd love to chat about this a little bit here. I, I think though, if a lot of these companies are falling down, one, because the hardware doesn't last that long, and two, and maybe in some cases this is one, the fleet isn't optimized from a rebalancing perspective, then I do think that those ideas around uh, rebalancing the fleet, whether you're using docks or you know, 1099 workers or robotics are going to be a fundamental part of micromobility, particularly in areas where the city has demanded that you're capped. So if you are capped, um, then the only way for you to make that more efficient is to have really active rebalancing. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in, in the rebalancing part of this world, mm -hmm. however you get there, whether it's robotics or some other mechanism. Mm -hmm. I think that's super fascinating. I also think this is part of um, the regs are pushing the these businesses in such a way that I think it's going to push a lot of private ownership or lease models of this because if the city says, look, you can only have 750 vehicles and they're capped at this speed, um, if I end up using micromobility enough, I'm probably going to say, well, I don't want a 15-mile-per-hour shared scooter that might or might not be there. I'd rather have a hot-rodded 40-miles-per-hour scooter that I keep in my garage and I bought from Ducati that I spent $2,500 on or some some version yeah. of that. And I think that the regs are, are going to push interesting little uh, businesses to be created out of this. Totally. And then this comes up a lot of, you know, the owned versus shared model as far as uh, uh, vehicle design. I'm, I, my tendency is to think is that this model is still going to be uh, shared driven uh, in terms of the R&D dollars. We've seen over decades the development of consumerized product in bicycling and in motorized as well, but, uh, but it tends to be very fragmented and we end up with many, many players that aren't able to individually really become platforms. The opportunity here is the, is is whether a, a large fleet can can through also replace fast re replacement cycle drive a platform story. You know the, the 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 good thing about having scooters last short times is that you actually get a chance to do a new a new uh, a rollout of that's new, really 
a glass half full version of that. <laughs> Only in the oh, micro mobility podcast we're going to talk about. Yeah, no, no, but actually, I think I mean that to your point. It's it's like it's what is the um, what's the evolutionary pace of these vehicles? Sure, you know, and that's actually where I think, especially in the autonomous, I get really excited because I think one, you have the question around rebalancing, and so there's a very clear need and very like pressing need in the very short term to be able to work out how do we get around this and if we can solve for it by having the fleets rebalance themselves in the city then we'd, we effectively double or triple or quadruple our business and you've got a very material uh, inflow of cash to be able to do that and then the second is is that just you go and you know you go and replace these vehicles very quickly so you can iterate very very fast on this do you think that the supply chain the the i have a question for you about the supply chain do you think that the automotive supply chain is eventually going to wake up to the opportunity and and that auto supply chain is going to move down to micromobility. Yes. No, it's already happening. Is the micromobility supply chain going to grow up and eventually have pods and then this and then that, then cars? Well, so I'll relay what I know from Europe because I've been to a couple of uh, Eurobike shows. Eurobike is is an e-bike show, consumer products, but um, but it, the, the, the place is, is overrun with automotive now. Uh, Bosch, Continental, Broza, uh, Panasonic is there, um, uh, Samsung and, and so on, who have, through the battery uh, supply chain, are now entering e-bikes as well. And um, sitting with uh, Bosch, I mean, it's a $1 billion run rate for them now. Um, Continental is, is, was so anxious about it that they decided to go all in as well just to keep up with, with Bosch. And, um, uh, and, and then we have disruptors from China like Bafang who are trying to do basically come up and, and do the same thing from the low end. But the, so what's, what's really happening here is not the automotive per se, but rather the tier ones. Because if you're a ZF, um, you are really working with oily bits, as I call it, the, the, the transmissions, the hydraulic systems inside the car, and that's the most vulnerable part. The OEM might still have a future with, with, a, with electric drive, but the ones who are working on the mechanical subcomponents are, are really struggling or are, are seeing an existential threat. And to them, this actually presents itself as an opportunity, and the volumes are not small. So Borg Warners, you're looking at this, Denso is looking at this, have been investing actively. And it's not just a hobby or doing it because they, you know, it's an academic exercise. Uh, in fact, I think the OEMs are more, uh, more thinking about it as, okay, we should be part of this. We should invest, we should investigate. It's more of a, of a you know, it's not an existential issue yet, but for, for tier ones it is. And I think that what that means though, is that we have, it doesn't mean that they'll win, but I think that it, to them, to put it in, in, in disruption terms, to them, micromobility is sustaining, but the, the, um, whether the margins are there, I don't know, but, but it is, it's certainly, there's still an opportunity to, to have a low end uh, disruption happen there, but, uh, but then the whole sector is itself under threat from China. So uh, uh, I don't think it's anything unique from, uh, from that point of view, but, uh, but that means a great deal of Amazing technologies on the shelf right now. So, ABS is coming. Um, traction control is coming. Uh, we talked about vision, uh, and w w I see things like suspension systems, which are electromagnetic, uh, because they are great engineers. Top top automotive engineers are looking at these problems now, uh, and even more exciting would be the consumer electronics guys, the Samsung, LG, 
uh, even Sony participating in this space because it's funny how it seems to touch on not just automotive, not just uh, computation, but also consumer electronics, the supply chains related to mobile phones. Uh, we, see, we see obviously a need for a SIM card in every one of these things. Uh, so all of that, whatever is happening, uh, it seems to have uh, application here. So I, yeah, I don't know if I've got a clear answer to this, except that, that I've seen interest. Supply chains are merging, yeah, to come. I, I think one of the things that I'm maybe curious about is are the manufacturers who have made deals here, you know, Ford, for example, and PSA in their U.S. strategy um, in re-entering re North America is clearly looking at micromobility. So how, how will those companies apply their engineering to it? I think that's really quite fascinating. And yeah, and then, and, and, you know, just to give you a hint of that, I mean, we talked ABS, that's going to come via motorcycle yeah. technology that's been for 20 years, I think, in motorcycles. Um, as far as motors, for example, they're repurposing the types of automotive uh, mini motors that are in, in, let's say, driving your, you know, window uh, rising, uh, whatever that thing, the windows, um, and and so and some of that might even come from uh, power tools like sure. power tool technology. Before we go on, I want to make sure we, we we thank our sponsor for today, and that's Joyride. Uh, as we talk about micro mobility, there's there's countless current and aspiring micro mobility uh, fleet operations. There's, as I say, there's over twenty thousand markets out there. If you're one of these folks who want to launch micromobility in your in your community, you've probably you know something about it. You know what it takes to, to run a fleet efficiently and profitably. You've done your research. You've been reading blogs, articles, reports. You've been listening to this podcast. Uh, the metrics from uh, from those venture funded companies that we're talking about, you know, they're mind blowing. But you wonder how things would look if you focused on your local market. Well. Joyride provides the custom white-labeled mobile apps and scalable backend that allows everyone from the small local operator to transit agencies to launch their own micromobility fleet within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch with your own bikes or scooters. Here's an example of what one Joyride customer has accomplished. The operator launched with a fleet of 200 scooters, electric scooters, in their hometown, and within two months, they were making six, six figures from these rides, all while competing in the city that had already some of the largest scooter share companies operating in competition. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you didn't think you could compete in the micromobility space before. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled and saturated by a few giants. Well, Joyride let, levels the playing field for, these op for, for new operators. Um, for you, for you as, a, as a, their operator, allowing anyone to succeed with their fleet. If you're an independent operator with the desire to launch locally or a transit agency looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find a mobility share solution that works. So start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at www.joyride.city. That's joyride.city. It's time to join the global micromobility movement. So, it, by the way, if you mention the Micromobility Podcast, you will receive the first month for free. So, thank you to Joyride for supporting 5x5 and Micromobility. Awesome. Excellent. So, on that basis, I'd love, Riley, I mean, obviously you were up in the panel uh, at the Micromobility Conference, and one of the things that really got talked about a lot was Lyman Bird and the sort of the cash war that's being played out. 
um, at the moment. And I'd love to get your take on how you see that market evolving. Like, there's a, and so for context for anybody who's listening to this later in the future, um, both, I think, uh, Lime closed a $400 million round, Bird raised a $300 million round, both at flat valuations. So this is a sort of an interesting cash burn um, question. And I'm just curious, when you guys look at this, how do you, how do you think through that? Mm. Well, we're, we're not late stage investors. So I'd say my perspective on the sort of late or mid to late stage financings they're doing is um, I don't have too much of an opinion on it other than um, it seems like what Bird and Lime are trying to do is something I find to be very difficult, which is to be a global services company. It's difficult but doable to be a global products company. Apple does it, you know, Uniglo does it, et cetera. Um, but when you offer global services, there are very few companies, even Uber now, oh, absolutely. We has talked retreated about this. from this, right? So um, only when you get to financial services and maybe fast food do you find global, true global services companies. Um, and I believe that their intent is really to roll up a global services platform under Bird and Lime. And I think that's going to prove to be very difficult. I don't know if they'll be able to do it. My guess which is what happened to Uber, is there'll probably be these large regional stakes where in a region you might have one or two winners or you might have three winners globally. Um, and so it, will Lime or Bird split the globe up? Um, that's probably what they're trying to do over the next five years. But making a go of it and saying we're going to just simply outspend and we're going to be in more cities faster than another person, that's the arms race, the Ford versus Chevy thing that they're doing now. Um, if I was on one of those teams, I'd probably be able to make a good case for it. Um, but I think we'll see how it shakes out over the coming two or three years. Yeah, we, we mentioned this before in terms of like, as I say, there's, I think there's 20,000 markets. There's that many cities that will support this and communities that would support this and try to manage 20,000 different territories centrally. It's going to be really hard, which is why we invented franchising as a model. So in, in that sense, maybe there's a franchise opportunity here. Uh, or alternatively, it's going to go the way of retail, and it's like very hard for even Amazon to be an operator globally. Uh, the most commoditized product needs to be sold differently in each market. Apparently, you know, we don't have global clothing retail, kind of H and M, maybe. But um, yeah, IKEA is the only one that comes to mind. Yeah, that's true. A that's a good point. Uh, that, good that's point. not in New Zealand yet, so I wouldn't say it's fully okay. global. <laughs> yeah. Um, so f from your perspective, obviously you guys, when you're thinking about the space you've got, um, you've got the three investments that you've made. Have you, can you talk anything um, at all about the, the w how your thesis has evolved in this probably in the last like three to six months? Sure. Um, well, I mean, one of the one of the biggest investments we have in micromobility is something that doesn't move. So we have an investment in a company called Cord, which was a Sidewalk Labs Google spin out. And, you know, their philosophy is, look, I don't know if Bird and Lime are going to be around in 10 years, but there's always going to be a curb on 3rd Street. So if we can be the dominant platform to provide APIs for curb space and toll segments and parking, that's going to be a really valuable position. And I think for us, it kind of made us realize over time, micromobility and transportation at large is really about space and geometry, right? And so micromobility right now is fighting for its space on maybe a sidewalk in some communities, maybe a bike lane, maybe the road. Um, but a lot of this is really about um, space or geometry or real estate. And so I'm really fascinated on the sort of spatial parts of micromobility. Um, we made a mistake 
in not investing in a company called Transit Screen about a year ago. It remains, I believe, uh, one of the lacuna of the truck's portfolio because I didn't understand at the time how it was going to provide data to really allow you as someone standing in one space to kind of look at all the transportation options near you and have a really great data business on top of it. Um, wish I would have done that. And um, so I love the things, certainly in moving vehicles, but in all the fixed sort of durable hard points of the city as well. Uh, and th that's not to say I'm going to start becoming a REIT or a real, real estate investor at large, but I'm fascinated by all the other parts of micromobility, including docks and charging and things like that. Yeah, it also strikes me as, I mean, to your point, it's sort of like the services that sit around it. Like, you go and let Burden Line have this gigantic all-out cash wall where they're just burning in large amounts of cash. And then what are the, who are going to be the peripheral businesses that actually do well? And because we've kind of proved out that there's demand. I mean, one of the amazing things I saw on that micromobility panel uh, with the scooter operators was Grin, uh, the guy who, who runs in Mexico, effectively said, look, if we double the number of scooters we have on the road, we double our revenue. So that the, the total addressable market is so big. So you, you can see that there's going to be demand there and you can see there's going to be action there. How that plays out in terms of, you know, which the operators that will end up being is not clear. But the, everything else that sits around it, the, you know, the transit screen, the, the, those other things as the well. Biggest, the biggest booth at Micromobility was a Twilio booth. You know, yeah. obviously it's a public company now, so they have more money than, you know, Drop Mobility does. But... Um, you know, the in real inverse, inverse as well, uh, mm. but these are exactly. essentially software layers. Yeah. Yeah. So who are the, the real, um, companies benefiting from this? It's a lot of the interconnects to your phone and ultimately to your payment system. Um, so we've looked at that too. I think, you know, one of the un, um, unsung sort of heroes of space is a company called Particle. We don't have an investment in that, but, you know, in general, focusing on the telematics part of the, the vehicle. And I think there's there's probably more to be done on that piece as well. Um, so I'm, I kind of think almost in a way micromobility is a microcosm of the transportation thesis that we have at large and that there's just a lot of different components to it. And if you're willing to expose some of those that might be undervalued, I think there will be a lot of interesting companies that are created out of this space that might not even exist today. That's a fascinating analogy because, again, if you think about the, all the analysis you may have done in automotive and you would have thought about the transformation there, so, so again, the analogy going to say, well, are there anal analogous companies in the microspace that are, that are going to be sort of part of the stack? Um, similar star story with computing. Like when we went from uh, PC world in the 80s and 90s, where Wintel was create, created the uh, you know the dominant architecture, but also you had uh, a, the value-added um, uh, and you know developers on top, that replicated itself, but slightly different players. Uh, but the architecture is very similar, and um, and there's a way to you know sort of leverage the thinking that's happened already in terms of uh, automotive and and but I love the analogy with uh, with with respect to real estate and the questions related to that because uh, if there's one thing we have fixed in our worlds our first 24 hours in a day asking yourself uh, who's going to own your attention during that time that's not going to expand but the other is that the cities are not going to disappear and if anything there will be new cities created uh, but but there you know and existing cities will grow probably vertically as well as, as horizontally but but the uh, that real estate on the surface of the streets is the most interesting real estate uh, in the world and to me that is up for grabs in many ways how do we think about that 
is a, is an exciting one, one way to, for example, just a quick a quick an, uh, uh, anecdote would be like if if you're if you're tracking behavior on those streets through uh, through micro mobility uh, uh, rides that that uh, are sort of part of the platform. Uh, you might be able to discern a lot of behaviors uh, that today are not visible. Uh, and in so doing, you might be able to expose commerce and you expose opportunities the same way that uh, web traffic has uh, sort of allows the, the surfacing of, of various um, uh, new models for attention uh, capture. But here we're gonna, we might capture uh, potential uh, footfall. And, and, and so whatever Amazon is doing to, uh, uh, you know, to, to take footfall away, we could, we, micromobility sure. might bring it back. The studies in London around biking are, have exposed a lot of, you know, the, the more ability you can have to put your population on bikes, the more they'll spend in retail. Yeah. Um, I, my concern, of course, is that uh, the way that the dominant fleets have, um, have portrayed the rollout of this has been really adversarial. And so one of the concerns about micromobility, I think, is that, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a coalition that's led by a Gandhi-like individual. Yes. Um, it has really been almost in a way um, such an aggressive thing that my concern is the opportunity to do new bike lanes and to evangelize the, the benefits of micromobility um, are potentially being held back by the mechanisms of the large fleet players. Mm -hmm. And not to, to, to be obtuse about that, I mean Bird and Lime specifically. Yes. And so um, this is one of the reasons why I believe in the you know, sort of church of Horus Didius, because <laughs> I believe that, that the, the benefits of the platform are important not just because of my interest as a venture capitalist, um, but I believe that overall, the benefits of micromobility need to be kind of exposed in a way that um, the best of micromobility is brought to the fore, um, not just the biggest. And right now, my concern with micromobility is only the biggest forms of VC or fleets or this or that are being exposed as the dominant mindshare. And I think that um, we will be better to kind of recalibrate ourselves around the high quality aspects of some of these fleets, some of whom are maybe tiny right now or and not billion dollar companies. So um, I wanted to sort of beat the drum for that in, in talking oh, about thank it. Thank you, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Uh, well, you know, we, what we try in the show is to, to expose the agnostic view of, of micromobility as, as sort of a net benefit to, uh, to society and also without being kind of really pounding the table on uh, social justice, but we're, we're just saying there's a net benefit here, and one one phrase I was toying with as we as I was thinking about uh, uh, I was at after the conference I went to the Bloomberg NEF um, event as well, and and um, and I, I kept going back to this theme that we want to have a market for miles, not a market for vehicles, and and so I, I said measure miles and smiles. I mean the, the the miles is the utility, smiles is the is the joy, uh, versus the alternative which is measuring cars and carbon, which are Yes, I mean, these are things you can measure, you should measure, but, but really the, to derive the benefit, you want to really measure what, what's in it for the user, not what's in it or for the regulator and, and, the, and the manufacturer. So, so phrase of the day, uh, you know, count miles and smiles, not cars and carbon. Excellent. 
Well, look, I'm aware uh, we need to wrap up. So I also just want to use this opportunity while we're in with Riley to announce uh, the Micromobility VC syndicate. So uh, on AngelList, um, I mean, this really came about because Horace and I and others uh, are getting a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are coming to us and saying, hey, look, these are, these are ideas that we have um, about this space. And we're, we're finding a lot of those actually really interesting. And we've done a couple of small investments in that space to date. Um, but we thought there's actually a lot of investors who are also looking at this as well. We're looking really small, um, not going to be obviously late stage financings, but um, there will be some uh, companies that come along and we, we really think that they're good. We're going to be doing personal investments. And if you'd like to come and join along with us um, and you're an accredited investor in the US, um, you can uh, come and join us. The way to do that would just be to go to the Angel List, uh, to, to Oliver Bruce or to Horace Deju on Angel List, and then you'll be able to apply to join the syndicate. Um, and from that, we'll be syndicating out deals that we find interesting in this space. Um, really kind of a lot of the thesis of the things that we've been talking about today. I think you guys are going to, there's going to be a lot of interesting people that come and knock on your door. So um, I'm really excited to follow along with what you guys are doing with that. It'll be really fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, well, well, just following on this conference where we had 650 people or, uh, join us, uh, we were just sort of like in the middle of a tornado. Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, what they call deal flow, I guess, and uh, we want to we want to help others also to have, you know participate. So that's the whole idea. Absolutely, excellent. All right, well, thanks so much, Riley. Hey, people, if people are uh, interested in finding more about you, how how do they do that? Uh, Trucks.vc or on Twitter, uh, Riley Brennan. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone.